Come on, church family. In this room and at all locations online, can we give Jesus a huge shout of praise? Come on. The King of Kings. Is everybody feeling okay today? I'm so honored today to uh, open up God's word uh, with you, uh, wherever you're watching from. I believe that God wants to speak to you today. And for those of you that may not know who I am, my name is Davey. And that's all you need to know. And I'm excited to jump into God's word. And we are going to finish uh, a two-week series called What Pleases God. What Pleases God. So if you've got a Bible, you can get it ready by going to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to thank Pastor Rob for the opportunity to share today. I don't take these moments lightly anytime we open up God's word. I don't take it lightly. And uh, I'm excited today to uh, continue talking about the things that please God, what pleases God. And uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. But before we get to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to go to everybody's favorite book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. I don't know why you're laughing. Leviticus Chapter 20, verse 26 says, you are to be holy. Holy means set apart. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. The, the context of Leviticus right here is, is uh, God has supernaturally set his people free from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he's brought them into the promised land. Now, he also has a plan for them to go into Canaan, and God does not want his people to live the way that they had been living in Egypt. Uh, he also doesn't want them to live like the people of Canaan where they are about to go. He has a way for them to live. It is the best way that they could possibly live. It's the most abundant way for them to live in their promised land, and it is a way that is set apart. It is, it is a life of holiness. And, and I want you to know that, that God has actually done the same thing for you. That you were enslaved to your sin, to your Egypt. And God supernaturally set you free by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And now you live in a promised land. Some of you, you don't even realize it. You're still living like you lived in Egypt. Or maybe you got set free from your Egypt and you think you're in your promised land, but you ended up in your Canaan and you're living more like the Canaanites than you are like the people of God in the promised land. And, and, and here's the beautiful thing, is, is God made a way. And in the same way that we read in Leviticus, we're gonna get to Colossians, in the same way that we, we read in Leviticus, he made a way for the people of God to have their sins atoned for, covered, canceled. And Jesus does the same thing for us. So with that in mind, let's go to Colossians. Let's go to Colossians. Chapter one, starting in verse nine. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him 
in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. Here it is right here. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Come on, can we give Jesus some praise for that? I'm gonna preach a message for the next few moments. The title of the message is this, a prayer for your promised land. A prayer for your promised land. Let's pray together. God, we did not come here to hear words and thoughts from a man, but we came here to encounter you. We came here to hear from heaven. So God, as we take these moments and we open up your word, would you open up our ears and open up our hearts to respond? We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. I've got, a, I've got two kids. Winnie is our daughter. She's six. Tuck is our son. He's three. And uh, every night, every night, we pray specific prayers over our children's lives. Specific prayers. I know if you're, if, if you're a parent of small children, you're thinking, wow, that's it? Like, you just go in there and pray? No, I'm with you. Uh, bedtime is chaotic. I heard one comedian very accurately describe bedtime with small children as like a reverse hostage negotiation. Like, I'll give you anything you want. Just stay in your room, you know? That's kind of how it feels. In fact, one time, uh, Tuck got a little rowdy. He got a little rowdy at bedtime, started running around the house buck naked. And I, I, because he's fast but fragile, I didn't want to hurt him. So I had to throw a blanket on top of him to, to kind of slow him down, crumple his little knees a little bit. And I ran up to him like a cowboy wrangling a calf. And this is just, listen, this is just to get him in bed. It's just to get him in bed. We get them in bed, get him in bed, and we read a story, and then we begin to pray. We can begin to pray over our children, pray for our children. We pray very specific things over our children. We pray that they would know that they are children of God, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that they are made in the image and likeness of God, that they don't need to fear because God has not given them a spirit of fear, but of love and a power and a sound mind, that no weapon formed against them is going to prosper. We pray very specific things over our children beyond what we, what we want them to do for a job someday. We pray for things that have eternal significance, things that matter, things that matter for how they're gonna live their lives right now and for how they're gonna live their lives in the future. We want them to know who they are and whose they are. Uh, we go to battle in the spiritual realm. When we pray for our children, we, we peel back the spiritual atmosphere. We go to battle for our kids when we pray for them. And our, our, our little beautiful Winnie was uh, dealing with some, some fear and anxiety. And uh, so as we began to pray and speak these things into her life, we started doing something to help her live these things out. We, we, it was called a joy jar. And uh, very, very theological. <laughs> and uh, it's a joy jar. It's a jar. And every time that she starts to live out the things that she uh, that we speak over her, she gets to put a cotton ball in the jar. 
Or if she says the things that we say over her, if she says, I am not afraid because God has not given me a spirit of fear. If she says those things and starts to believe those things, man, we're, we're clapping, we're cheering, like put a cotton ball in the joy jar. And, and, and the, the purpose for this initially was so that she could walk with joy, so that she could understand who she is and walk with real joy. But I have to tell you that as her father, I can guarantee you that as I watch my daughter living out the things that God has created her to live out and having the heavenly perspective that God has of her, I can promise you I was filled with way more joy watching my child live her life the way that she's supposed to live. In the same way, God is praying for us. God is praying for things that matter in our life. And I want to speak to somebody that you didn't grow up in the church. You didn't grow up with Christian parents. You didn't grow up in a home that may have felt safe and encouraging. But I want you to know that God has always been watching and praying and he sees you. It says this in Romans 8, 34. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Paul is praying for the people of Colossae. And he's praying for them. He's praying things that matter for them. Things that are eternal. Beyond their business dealings, he's praying for who they become, that they would know who they are and whose they are. Paul, just for some context, in Colossians, Paul is writing from prison. And uh, the, the church in Colossae was started, uh, we, we think it was started by a guy named Epaphras who was from Colossae. He's likely uh, the fruit of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. And as he's beginning this church and starting to, to, to do some ministry and, and things are happening, he becomes concerned because of the culture in Colossae. He becomes really concerned because uh, there's false teachers, there, there's this syncretism, there's, there's all of these different things that are happening. He becomes concerned. And so he, he reports to Paul saying, hey, this is what's going on. I need help. I, I don't know what to do. And Paul, in hearing about all of this, is so encouraged by, by what he hears about the people in the church of Colossae. He's so encouraged. He's encouraged because they, they in spite of the, the craziness of the culture that they live in, they know whose they are. They know who they are. They, they are living a, a way that reflects that they understand the gospel, what Jesus has done for them. And Paul's prayer to the church at Colossae should be taken to heart for us because the city and culture of Colossae actually reflects much of the culture that we have in our world right now. They were dealing with false teachers. The, the false teachers there had undercut the, the, the theology of, of what it means to follow Jesus and the major doctrines and beliefs of Christianity. Specifically, they were, they were undercutting the deity of Christ, the absolute lordship and sufficiency of Christ. They were dealing with what I shared was this syncretism. It was, it was basically a hodgepodge of beliefs. Mysticism, a little bit of Greek philosophy, some, some Jewish legalism mixed in there, and that was their way of teaching and living. And so in the midst of that culture, Paul 
with encouragement in his heart, writes to the church in Colossae and begins to pray for them. And his prayer, I see it in, broken down in three different parts. And these are the three points that they would know God's will, they would grow in God's wisdom, and that they would live a life worthy of God. So point number one, that they would know his will. Know his will. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take some time on this one because the will of God is one of the most, uh, the, one of the things that we overcomplicate the most. The will of God, that we would know his will. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, be careful, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The will of God can be found in the word and worship of God. Jesus says in Luke 8 that the, the word of God is a seed. And when that seed that bears fruit is planted in you, you are to bear the fruit of that seed. You are bearing fruit of whatever seed you plant in your life, just so you know. That whether you realize it or not, you are planting seeds and bearing fruit in your life. So this is what Jesus says in John 15. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you will ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Every decision you make is either a conforming decision or a transforming decision. And Ephesians 5 talks about the word of God is something that has watering, transforming power in your life. And we need to immerse ourselves in the word of God. The word of God is not something that we are to sprinkle into our lives in the morning and hope that it just carries on throughout the day, but we are to immerse, remain, abide in God's word, in God's worship. Immersing ourselves in God's word immerses us in his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And when we immerse ourselves in God's word and God's worship, we see God for who he truly is. And we see ourselves for who we truly are, his children. And when we do that, it's in that depth of relationship with God that fuels our desire to please him. We're talking about what pleases God. And we should ask the question, why should we want to please God? And the more that we are with God, the more that we remain in him, the more that we immerse ourselves in the things of God, we begin to see God for who he truly is. And we can't help but please him. If you missed last week's message with, from Pastor Rob, you need to go back and watch that. He explains so brilliantly, like a relationship between a husband and a wife takes time and intentionality. So our relationship with God takes time and intentionality. But as we read God's word, we must align our lives to it, not align it to our lives. That's the difference between th this word exegesis and eisegesis. That's the difference between us reading the Bible and saying, because I see this happening in the world, that's what the Bible is gonna mean. 
The way we need to read the Bible is we need to allow it to speak to us, see what it actually says, and apply that to whatever context and culture we are living in. Very similar to the false teachings of Colossae, we have that happening all the time right now. Some people call it new. They'll call it a new hermeneutic, or, or, or some people refer to it as woke theology. But this has been happening since the beginning of time. How did, God, how did uh, the devil deceive Adam and Eve with God's word? He said, did God really say? Is that really, that couldn't be what God really meant. This has been happening since the beginning of time, the twisting of God's word. And so that's why it's so important that as we immerse ourselves in God's word, we do so in community. That's why we do SOAP together. SOAP is our Bible reading plan. It stands for scripture, observation, application, and prayer. But when we read God's word, we need to do so in community so that we can ask each other questions. I have a degree in biblical studies and every time I read the Bible, I have questions. We need to ask those questions. That's why we exist in community, to grow together in the things of God. So as we align our lives with God's word and God's will, it becomes quite clear the way he wants us to live, the way he wants us to please him with our lives. It's not a secret. Here's just a, a short little list. Ephesians 4 and 5. Uh, these are, he, he clearly illustrates in, in this portion of scripture things to take away from your life. And when you take those things away, things to add. I'll just, just a few of them. It says, put off your old self and put on your new self. Put on your, put, take off the Egypt and put on the promised land. Stop telling lies, start being truthful. Stop stealing and give generously. No, no obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. Instead, be thankful. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 5.10, he says, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. We can and must know the will of God. In order to do that, we need to grow in wisdom. Point number two, grow in wisdom. Grow in wisdom. I'm not talking about more information. I'm talking about revelation. The difference between those two things is information is something that I read and understand myself. Revelation is something that only God, only God could have told me. Only God could have made that clear to me. That's the difference. I, this is what it says. Uh, N.T. Wright says this. What Paul prays for is that the new Christian instinct may become firmly implanted in them, just as a mother duck wants her ducklings to be able to work out for themselves how to feed, how to avoid danger, and to live wisely in a threatening environment. So Paul longs to see these young Christians coming to know for themselves what God's will is. They need wisdom and spiritual understanding, not just book learning or human traditions, but a deep inner sense of who they are now in their newly created human lives. We need to grow in this wisdom. We're commanded to, it says in Hebrews 6, to, to leave the elementary teachings. We, we need it to, to, to wage war against our enemy. We need it to be an effective witness. Jesus says if, if salt loses its saltiness, what's the point? And it pleases God as we grow. But there's nothing casual about living life as a Christian. And if we treat our life in Christ casually, we will become another Christian casualty. It takes time, intentionality, 
It takes a desire for this experience to be more than just a head experience, something that you see and hear and smell, but something that is a heart experience, that the things of God, the, the spiritual realm would become a greater reality to you than the things that you see in the earthly realm. That when you pray for your kids, when you pray for your spouse, that you are going to war for them in the spiritual realm, that you're, not, you're doing more than God's need, let's eat, amen. But it takes this revelation of who God is and who he's created you to be. I, I, I wanna share this, this quote. It's, it's a prayer that I've been praying every single morning. And I was reading a book called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, and he prays this prayer at the end of one of his chapters. It says, oh God, quicken to life every power within me that I may lay hold on eternal things. Open my eyes that I may see. Give me acute spiritual perception. Enable me to taste thee and know that thou art good. Make heaven more real to me than any earthly thing has ever been. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's the prayer that I pray over us as a church, that we would desire to grow in this knowledge and wisdom of God. Last point is that we would walk worthy. Knowing God's will through his word will allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, his revelation, and grow our wisdom and understanding. And as N.T. Wright says, understanding will fuel holiness, and holiness will deepen understanding. As a Christian, the way we live matters. The way we live our lives matters. And, and over the years, there are different swings of schools of thought and traditions in church. And, and I believe right now we are in a swing in an overcorrection, trying to overcorrect and correct some legalism in our world. But I think that we, we may have swung too far to the point where I think oftentimes Christians look a little bit less like Christ and more like the culture that they exist in. And we need to get back to living the way God intended us to live in our promised land. We need to walk worthy. We need to do something. We can't just sit and hope that holiness will happen to us. It takes intentionality. It takes some action. Just for a quick example, myself. I don't, the, I don't have any passwords known on my phone. My wife knows every password. I can't download an app, download a song, uh, watch anything, listen to anything without getting a password from my wife. You might be thinking to yourself, that is a little bit intense. Maybe it is, but I will risk my comfort so I can live in conviction, purity, and holiness in my promised land. I know what my Egypt is. I know what my Egypt is, and I know where God has called me to, so I know what I have to do to live in my promised land. So I'm gonna do what I have to do. And I know right now, some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, are you telling me that I have to prove my worth? Walking worthy, living worthy, I have to prove my worth for God to love me and to forgive me? No. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. Colossians, we, we finished Colossians with this. Give joyful thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has already done it. God has already done it. He chose us. He loved us. Romans 5 says that while we were still in our sin, Jesus died for us. So God doesn't need you to prove that you are worthy of his son's sacrifice. He wants to know if Jesus' sacrifice is worth something to you. We need to walk worthy. We are his. We're bought with a price. We're to be holy. I close with this. First John chapter two. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We, we talked about it with Leviticus. Atonement means to cover, to cancel. That when God looks at something that is atoned, he doesn't look at the thing, but he looks at what is covering that thing. It's canceled. And in a world that's trying to cancel you, God is trying to love you and cancel your sin. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we serve, that when you remain in Jesus, God sees you through the lens of his atoning sacrifice. And it's from that place that we live and walk worthy. It's from that place, knowing God's will, growing in God's wisdom, living a life filled with the worth of Jesus' sacrifice that is pleasing to God, living in your promised land, knowing who you are and whose you are. So God, right now, we can't help but say thank you. You are so unbelievably holy, yet you love us so unbelievably. God, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us what area of our life needs to change. God, I, I pray right now for the person that has never seen you for who you truly are, a loving heavenly father. Would they see that today? Would you speak to each and every one of us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.